and just, again, what has brought you to this point? We want you to begin to think about that because Easter is just prime time of, of just spiritual receptivity. A lot of people are more open to coming to church at this time. And so um, we really want this to be on all of our minds, to be praying for people that, that are in our lives that we'd like to invite to Easter, um, or even just in this coming season, you know, just to inviting to this series on work. Everybody deals with challenges at work, and so God has a lot to say about that for all of us here. And so for people that aren't here, it's going to apply to them as well. And so, But hopefully this, this little video has just piqued your interest as far as like being more effective in sharing your faith and what that looks like. As a church, we have an approach that's very relational when it comes to sharing with others. And so we see in the Scripture that the message of faith usually passes from life to life life to life and so your life is connected to others already and so if you allow God to use you and he can create this chain reaction of conversations of relationships leading people to faith in Christ and so I want to encourage you and we're praying for you as you invite your friends this week Um, today we're wrapping things up um, on this message series called my dark side and it has been a series where we've looked at guilt anger greed and jealousy or emotions that haunt us. But I don't think we can talk about our dark side without addressing the area of lust. Um, lust is certainly um, an area that haunts our society, that all of us at some level are challenged with and face on a fairly regular basis. Um, this is one of those areas that, you know, if I, if I would have thought hard enough, I would have brought a hoodie and just walked around and preached in a hoodie. It's like this guy, because it would have been appropriate for this message, because it is, it is one of those things where it creates a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of, someone's holding up a hoodie for me to wear, thanks. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, when we talk about the issue, it's one of those dark issues. It haunts us. Someone asked me, are we going to be watching any video clip? Certainly not hard to find, but we don't need any help in this department to, to understand how lust works and how we're enticed, and so... Most men would probably do a four-for-one trade. I'll take greed, guilt, jealousy, anger. I'll take them. Just help me get rid of my lust. Yeah. You know, or, or just ladies, you might be happy to do that trade for your husband, you know, so that he won't be dealing with this. Or, or maybe in your own life. This is just a very, very challenging area for all of us, if we're honest. So we're going to walk through a, a lot from Scripture this morning. And so... Um, you've got this listening guide. If you'd like, you can follow along. First off at the top, it says, Lust is a strong desire. It's really this, it's a sexual desire or an appetite that must be managed. It's a strong sexual desire that needs to be controlled and managed in our lives. It's a deceptive area, lust. It's a very tricky area because, and I, I hear people often talking about lust, not thinking it's all that challenging. And so there's a lot of discussion about lust we just play around in the idea. We, we talk very lightly about the topic. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I don't need to worry about this, or, or one little thought isn't going to hurt me, or one little sin won't hurt, or one look at an enticing image or person, checking someone out, or, or, or watching some steamy scene on a movie, or reading some steamy romance novel, you know, or one flirtatious conversation. It's not really going to hurt. It's just one thing. It's one small thing. Here's what Paul says about that type of thinking. Paul says this in Romans 6. This is not in your outline. Don't you know, he says, that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey. Pretty simple logic there. 
Even one sinful act can lead to enslavement. But Paul, he's ultimately saying, your, you know, your life is determined by a series of choices. And by our choices, we determine who will be our master. We choose to obey desires and we become enslaved to those desires. It's very clear in Scripture that if you give your lust a small snack, it will demand your life. It will take all. It will become your master. The Scripture is saying you, you don't get to play around when you start obeying things. It becomes, those things become your master. We become enslaved. Why, why is lust different than these other things we've looked at? And why are we this way? Where did this all come from? Uh, lust is not like guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. We've talked about those over the past month, and it is different. It's a different thing than those four things we've discussed. God created, this is a step or point in your outline, God created our desires. He created, to some regard, He created lust, a strong sexual desire. He created that in people. But after sin entered the world, lust became twisted. The strong desire got twisted in the wrong direction. When God created Adam and Eve, God presented Eve to Adam, and he had this strong desire for her. If you read through the pages of Genesis, you read the creation account, you'll see that Adam wanted her. He was, he was attracted to her. Adam wanted Eve. Eve wanted Adam. There was this desire, this strong, appropriate desire for each other. With sex came lust. It was kind of a packaged deal. God created the ability for them to reproduce. He gave them the command to multiply. And, but, they, but this was also for their enjoyment. And lust can be a really good thing in the proper boundaries. When it's in the proper boundaries, it can be a good thing. If it weren't for property or proper lust, then all of us wouldn't be alive. You might not want to think about that too much. But, okay, I'll move on. In a healthy marriage, lust is alive, it's well, and it's directed. It's focused towards a spouse. It's focused, it's aimed, and, and it's, it's not needing to be managed in that same sense. But before sin entered the world, so lust was in that same way. It was, it was there, it wasn't inappropriate. After sin entered the world, it was corrupted, and everything kind of went south. In a, it's really common in all of our lives, to wrestle with this area. It's a common struggle for all stages, all seasons of life. This is another thing you see in your outline is that it's not going away. No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how committed you are to God, you know, God, I want you to take this away. I'll I'll serve you. Our mind gets dragged away. Our mind picks up desires and we get enticed along. James chapter 1, verse 14. I'm not going to look at the verse, but it talks about the way our mind gets enticed. Lust comes and over time creates real destruction. But it's, it's an appetite that we must manage because it's not going away. It's here for the duration of our lives. Managing lust requires developing something that the Scripture calls self-control. Self-control. That's really the main way you battle with lust is you develop self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's, one of the, it's part of the change that He brings into our life when He moves in to a Christian. If you've decided to follow Christ, then God puts His Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and He brings about possibility for real change. One of the things He begins to develop is self-control and the possibility for for greater self-control over the years. Look at Paul's guidance to a pastor in the New Testament. Paul is is training 
a pastor named Titus. He writes him a letter, and he gives Titus some instruction on how to lead the church. And he's talking about what needs to be taught in the church. First, he says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So first thing he says is, all your teaching, Titus, needs to square up with what is right and solid teaching. You can't just make up your own playbook as far as where you're going to teach from. He says, the things that have been handed down to you, you need to keep in line with that. Everything you say needs to be squared up with solid doctrine. Then he says, and he starts talking about four groups of people. He says, here's what you need to teach the older men, then the older women, then the younger women, then the younger men. Now look at the list and see the common thread of self-control. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Then he gets to the older women. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women, by their example, in a sense, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign, which means to dishonor the Word of God. So to the older men, he says, you know, in there he says, make sure you teach them on self-control. To the older women, he says, by example, they need to exemplify self-control so they can teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Then in verse 6, he says, just tell the young men to be self-controlled. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. It's kind of funny. He doesn't give much. Just young men, self-control. But you see, the pattern comes up at all stages of life. Self-control, a combination of a focused mind, a focused mind, controlled mind, and restraint. It's a combination of those two things. If you think, oh, I'm going you know, to not struggle with lust once I'm a certain age or once I'm married, which I hear often, oh, as soon as I'm married, I'm not going to struggle with lust, or, or once I'm not so stressed, or once I'm not so busy, or once I have a better job, or once I've got more money, then I won't have so much time to think about all this stuff that comes into my mind. Paul would disagree. He's telling Titus, tell everyone at every stage they need to develop self-control. Old men, young men. Old women, young women. The battle for the mind is strong at all stages. It's a common struggle. In fact, another point, unbridled and unrestrained lust has devastating potential. It can do devastation. Look at this verse in Proverbs 25. Like a city city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. If you ignore the need to develop this area in your life, your vulnerability for total devastation just increases dramatically. This is a strong area to pay attention to. It has tremendous impact in our lives. I think the reason why is because sexual sin has a different impact than any other sin. Sexual sin has a different impact than any other sin. Sometimes you think about it, are there sins that are greater than others? You've probably heard that question asked. Like, are some sins, does God judge certain sins more than others? Sexual sin has a different impact than any other. Look at this verse. It's not in your outline, but I wanted you to see it. 1 Corinthians 6 says, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. Paul is indicating right here that sexual sin has a different impact than any other sin. It's not that God goes ballistic over sexual sin, but it's that it impacts us very different than other things that we do. There's something different when we cross the line sexually. He continues, verse, it says, But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You see, there's something that when we involve ourselves sexually, 
and something is inappropriate. There's some part of us that gets attached to that moment, to that time, to that person, to that experience. There's something about ourselves that gets attached. There's this emotional bond that connects. Intimacy begins to um, be shared in sex. And so sexual sin is very different in that it has a different impact. Verse 19, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. Nobody here, you, know, you don't own your body. You are not your own, he says. You were bought at a price. And here's the bottom line, Paul says. Bottom line, honor God with your body. Honor God. Like, give him my mind, my body. God, I'm yours to use. I want everything I think, everything I do to be pleasing to you. My body's not my own, it's yours. I don't want to drag you through the mud. I don't want to drag you through the experiences that, I, that my mind will lead me to. Paul's saying, do not minimize the impact of sexual sin. This is a very, very different area. So this whole series is focused on four other areas. We've talked about these, these areas, you know, greed, guilt, jealousy, and anger. And so dealing with the first four parts of our dark side that we've looked at is important. It's very important because if we'll deal with them in the appropriate way, it will increase our ability to develop self-control. And I want to give you just one example as it relates to anger. If you'll deal with anger, what you do is you eliminate the enemy's base of operation. As you deal with anger, that's on your outline as well. Whenever you deal with anger, you eliminate the enemy's base of operation because that Anger, unresolved anger, provides a stronghold in our life. Ephesians chapter 4, 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Bruce taught on this passage a couple weeks ago. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So Paul, he believed that an unresolved anger issue in our life gives the devil, gives Satan, gives demons, a base of operation in people's lives. And it's interesting that he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to a church. He's not talking to a group of people outside the church. He's saying to the church, this needs to be unresolved anger is a real issue for the rest of our lives. It opens the door for a stronghold, a foothold to begin. So the implication here is deal with your anger. How do you do it? It's through forgiveness. That's how you deal with anger. As you deal with as you begin to forgive people, you're knocking down that foothold. You're removing the enemy's foothold. If you refuse to deal with anger, you may as well prepare for the worst. Because why would we knowingly want to leave the enemy an area to wreak havoc in our lives, in other areas, especially in the area of lust? For some people, whenever you're angry, you're more vulnerable to sexual temptation than normal. If you're married and you have unresolved anger with your wife, that opens you up for lust after someone who's not your wife or not your husband. Unresolved anger long-term erodes intimacy in marriage. For some people, unresolved anger outside the marriage, just at, at work or with friends, if that's not dealt with, again, again, it provides opportunity. It provides this demonic foothold, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, a base of operations. We need to deal with that anger. 
one youth pastor I was reading, he said that he was on a bus coming back from church camp, and he was listening in on a conversation of two of the teenagers in the bus, and he could hear them talking. They didn't know he was within earshot. But basically one of them, they were middle schoolers, and one of them asked them, hey, would you ever let your boyfriend do, and you can fill in the blank, but it's, it's, it's an act that a lot of married couples aren't sure if they should do. But he's listening in on the response of the teenager, and the teenager says, you know, if I had just gotten in a fight with my mom, I would. I'd let him. See, there's a connection between unresolved anger and sex and lust and things out of bounds. It just provides a foothold. And so Paul's saying, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So, again, deal with the rest of our dark side. It's important. Ignoring our dark side, it's similar to ignoring a virus that's attacking our whole body. If we knew something is out of control, we need to deal with that thing, that virus that's spreading. A healthy heart will keep our God-given appetites focused and under control. A healthy heart. Regardless of how healthy you become, though, you need to understand that we have to develop this area of self-control all of our lives. It's very, it's very crucial for us. If you're currently battling lust, on the backside here, and I think all of us deal with lust to some regard, at some level, here's what God says about coming out of the darkness. First, know that there's always a way out. This is on the back of the outline. Know that there's always a way out. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Basically, anytime you feel like you're being overwhelmed, you're being overpowered by how you feel, don't trust your feelings, Paul's saying. Because God has made this promise. No temptation has seized you. Nothing has seized you or grabbed hold of you except what is common to man. Meaning the temptations that you and I face are common. They're not foreign to other people. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit to where you're like, I I had no choice. I had no way out. I had no other option but to follow my my mind and this enticement that's going on. Paul says, he won't let you be pushed beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he says, he will also provide a way out. Literally, the way of escape is what the wording actually literally says. He'll provide the way of escape so that you can bear up under it. The text does not imply that immediate escape will come. Sometimes God actually develops endurance through temptation, through, through challenges, that may, through, through things that may incite lust. God also wants to develop self-control so that we can endure, but ultimately He wants us to see the opportunity to flee, to flee the situation. Like 1 Corinthians six eighteen says, flee sexual immorality. It's not something you want to just hang around and think, oh, I'm going to, just, I'm going to wear this urge out. You'll be taken. He wants to provide a way out, a way of escape, so you can stand up under it. Along those same lines in the, in the battle, we, we need to refocus our mind on something else. Refocus your mind on something else. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. The battle is won or lost in our mind. This is a mind game. Whatever gets your attention, gets you. So whatever you give your attention to is going to have you. It's going to control you. So be careful what you focus on. Be careful. Screen the input. But if you just try to block thoughts, if that's your only battle for lust, is oh, I'm just going to block that thought. You'll only drive thoughts deeper in your mind. And so what we need to do, according to Scripture, is to replace our thoughts. Refocus our mind on something else. Follow Paul's argument here, Paul's model. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension. Those two words, arguments and pretensions, means warped philosophies, like warped worldly philosophies, and then pretensions are lofty thoughts or arrogant thoughts that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. These are worldly thoughts that enter into our mind, threatening to take us captive. And they're in opposition to what God thinks. These thoughts come into our mind all the time because we live in a mediated culture. We watch movies. We watch commercials. We didn't intend to see that ad. We didn't intend to hear that seductive line. We didn't intend to, but we're living in a world where it's just coming at us. Driving down the freeway, it's coming at you. you there's all of this stuff, and so we have, to, we have to refocus our mind on something else. We have to take the stuff that does come in, and as Paul says, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. We wrestle down the wrong thoughts that set itself up against God, and we force it into obedience. And do whatever is necessary to refocus our mind on something else. Another point is reveal your struggle to a godly friend for support. Open up. You don't need to broadcast your struggles to everyone. Hey, I'm really struggling. Everybody, right now, I'm really, that's not what we're asking. Honestly, it's just coming alongside some people who already know you, opening up with people that already know you. It's letting people know, hey, I'm really dealing with some thinking. If you're a guy, talk to another person that you know takes God seriously. Talk to a wiser guy. Not a wise guy, but a wiser man. If you're, if you're a woman, if you're a lady, because lust is not just a man's struggle. If you're dealing with lust and you're a lady, you need to talk to a godly woman. Scripture says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. A lot of people are losing the battle of lust because there's no one they're being open and honest with. People can pray for us. People can encourage us. They can even hold us accountable. But God's plan for our long-term freedom includes other people. He wants us to be open. You want to be healed of that persistent temptation? Listen to what James says, 5.16, James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Healing comes as we open up. We find freedom as we open up because we're no longer hiding in the dark. Lust is an area of secrecy. It's, it's the area we want to put the hood on and don't admit. What we really find out in reality is that everybody deals with this to some level. Concealing sin only prolongs us finding freedom. And Satan, he wants us to think that your sin and your temptation is just you. And you're, you're, you're unique, and so you need to keep it a secret. But that couldn't be further from the truth. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The things we face in our mind, the, the ways we're enticed are common. We hide our faults, we hide our struggles because we're, you know, we're all pretty prideful people. But the truth is, if we'll humble ourselves and open up, we find real freedom. The other thing is, fourth, resist the devil. Resist him. James 4, 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't just passively resign ourselves to his attacks. When we sense he's attacking, we're to fight back. We're to resist. We don't just give in and, okay, leave my mind wherever I want you to go. We don't follow just our mind. We don't follow the things we're enticed after. It may be attack. The New Testament often describes the Christian life in terms of warfare. We're fighting, we're conquering, we're striving, we're overcoming. Christians are oftentimes 
you know, compared to those who are advancing in enemy territory. There's this battle that we're, this war we're engaged in. And the most important part of the battle is this. Be certain that you have a genuine faith in Christ. Be certain that you know Christ. Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all this, Paul's talking about the armor of God that we're to put on. He says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You see the attack of the enemy there. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Two things, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The first step is to accept God's salvation if you have not already. You won't be able to say no to the devil unless you've said yes to Christ. His power won't be able to work in you unless he's living inside of you. So if you've not yet decided to follow Christ, that's the starting point for you. If you're losing the battle and you feel like, I don't know where to go, what to do, turn to Christ. He, he holds our victory. Secondly, use the right weapon. God's Word holds the power for the Christian. The Bible is like a powerful sword that He's given to us to use in times of testing. Every time Satan suggested a temptation, Jesus quoted a Scripture. He responded with Scripture to Satan. One place, Matthew 4.4, Jesus answered the devil when he was tempting him. And he said, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He didn't argue with him. He didn't respond and engage in a debate. He simply quoted Scripture from memory. Satan fears the power that the Word of God holds. My Word, your Word, is not all that powerful in a spiritual battle. So we want to, we want to use the sword of the Spirit. Some of you may be great negotiators. I'm sure there's some really good salespeople in here. You're probably really good negotiators, really good marketers. You can sell anything. You can, you can advertise. You can, you're smooth. You can win every argument. But when it comes to negotiating, if you're trying to argue with the devil on your own, you're going to lose every time. We do not have it within us to be able to defeat him. Apart from God and his power working in us, we, we use the word of God. You may know how to play the odds in other sports, in other arenas. You may know how to, but if you fail to use the Bible, again, you'll be taken over and over. You'll lose the battle. The Bible is God's truth. And the way we use it is we memorize it, we meditate upon it, so we internalize it. And then when the temptation comes up, we recite it, we say it, we pray it. There's power in the Word of God. Finally, last thing, as we're wrapping things up, and this is really how we began this entire series Never forget your vulnerability. Do not forget your vulnerability in this area of lust or in any area that we've discussed over the course of this series. The warning throughout Scripture is never get cocky. Don't get overconfident. Don't put your hope in yourself and think, I'm growing, I'm really getting this, I'm getting the hang of it. You're setting yourself up for epic fail. That's just a recipe for disaster. So do not get overconfident. Look at what Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's sick. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. This verse means we're really good at fooling ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at tricking myself, at deceiving myself. My heart is tricky. It's deceitful. Given the right circumstances, any of us are capable of any sin. So we need to be on guard, not letting our guard down. That's why Paul told the church this final verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. This is a great verse to, to, to memorize. Because at all stages of your life, 
we will be vulnerable. Our mind can lead us to some very, very dark things. One of the ways that we encourage people to stay free is to live an honest and open life before others. Cody, you, you guys, the band can come on up. And, but one of the values that we have as a church, we have seven hard attitudes that for those who are members of our church, they make a commitment to. One of those hard attitudes is live an honest, open life before others. Meaning, other people know me. I'm not going to wear a mask before other people. I'm going to be honest about who I really am. doesn't mean I broadcast it to everybody, but there's people who are in my life, part of this church, that know the real me. I've given them permission to know me, and I, I know them, and I live an honest and open life. That's one way you can prevent yourself from being, um, you know, growing cocky and overconfident through the years, is get close to people, let others in. And in just a moment, our ushers are going to be coming around to receive our offering. And if you take out this white card and turn it over to the back, consider taking one of these next steps that you see. Check it, check it and drop it in the offering as it comes around in a few moments. The first one is, maybe one response is, you know, I need to memorize a verse to help me combat area of lust. If you're dealing with just, if you feel like I'm just losing the battle with my eyes, just, I just need to learn how to respond in the moment when I see something that incites my lust. Memorize Job 31.1. If, you, if you're struggling with the issue of when I am tempted, I don't know what to do. I get frozen. You know, Maybe 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's a way out. 2 Corinthians 10.5 would be a verse to memorize on refocusing my mind, refocusing my thoughts, not just being captured by my thoughts. But I encourage you to, to memorize some verses that you can use Secondly, talk with a friend about my areas of vulnerability. This is probably one of the most helpful things all of us can do is to drag the darkness of our lives into the light. Just let other people in. Begin to share honestly with others. I'd encourage you to to begin to do that. I know we think, well, I don't want to jeopardize my self-image. Believe me, it's far worse if you cave into these things secretly and it devastates your life publicly. Why not just drag it into the open before it destroys Third, more lighthearted note, egg the city this week. Help us um, invite people tonight from 4 to 6 right here on the meadow. We'll be, we'll be uh, if you can show up pretty much at by 4, we'll be leaving pretty quickly. We'll be giving you eggs and a map, and so you'll know where to distribute. You'll go with a partner so you won't be on your own. And, uh, and then afterwards, we're going to have a barbecue together So for anybody that comes. And then last, personally invite and bring a guest to Easter service. We put those business cards there for you to invite someone with. There's larger cards if you want more information. If you have people you think that would be fascinated to come watch eggs coming out of a helicopter, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a, a bunch of kids to, to get thousands of eggs. So, well, we have all the eggs. We have like, right now we have maybe 6,000 eggs and so, and then 5,000 invites. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for for your work in our lives. Thank you for seeing our need. Lord, you did for us what none of us could do. You provided forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ. You sent your Son to the earth. He lived a perfect life. And then He went to the cross to pay the penalty for my rebellion, for our rebellion. God, if we'll turn our life over to